Let the market economy decide. When contemplating the ideological grounds for a strong stance against human-made climate change, there is clear evidence that the liberal paradigm of the market economy has been vital in ensuring the development of cost-effective solutions. This has also been the case when it comes to other challenges that mankind has overcome, including global health threats. The market economy has led to an improved economic situation for almost everyone. The percentage of people living in abject or absolute poverty is at a historical low, and this in turn has led to the successful eradication of many diseases and other health threats. It has also led to the increase of the average lifespan of humans across the world. Resource scarcity Non-renewable resources will become more and more scarce until they run out. Thomas Malthus observed that an increase in a nation's food production improved the well-being of the populace, but that this improvement would be temporary because it led to population growth, which in turn restored the original per capita production level. This Malthusian trap has since been used as a warning against the overconsumption of other material resources, echoed in modern times by the Club of Rome's famous 1972 publication Limits to Growth. In it, it is argued that Earth's resources cannot support present rates of economic and population growth much beyond the year 2100, if that long, even with advanced technology. For a number of resources, this has been proven wrong over time, most often through substitution. Following the principle of availability and demand, when a resource becomes scarce, it becomes more expensive, and it then becomes economically viable to switch to an existing substitute, or to develop such a substitute. This might mean replacing virgin material with recycled or reused material, reducing consumption through increased efficiency, developing a new business model, for instance, a service rather than a product, or switching to a different product altogether. Decoupling evidence Local pollutants, such as soot, particulate matter, and NOx, have been proven to follow an inverted U-curve, initially increasing with rising incomes and then reaching a point where higher incomes lead to lower emissions. This is due to a fact already recognised by Adam Smith and confirmed by behavioural psychologists, that when we reach a certain stage of development, as humans and as a society, we no longer need to focus on basic survival and can devote more attention, time and resources to a better standard of living. This in turn includes better air quality and less garbage in the streets, among other benefits. These success stories do not mean that we can take market economy solutions for granted. This is especially true considering that, on a global scale, we have yet to identify anything even approaching an inverted U-curve for climate-related emissions. Until now, increased prosperity on a global scale has always been accompanied by rising CO2 emissions, with the two indicators following each other so closely that they seem like two sides of the same coin. With this as an indisputable, global fact for the last several decades, we now see that many authorities within the realm of climate change are challenging the market economy, blaming it for the failure to seriously curb CO2 emissions. In medical terms, such a claim is easily falsified. For instance, if one is bitten by a venomous snake, 
the serum or antidote must come from the same species of snake to be effective. Use a different medicine and the patient will die. Furthermore, many of the top polluters are state-owned, so are not subject to the normal rules of the market economy, where we have time and again seen that the market will reward efficient solutions. All four of the biggest emitters of GHGs in the world are state-owned. Chinese coal, Saudi Arabian oil, Gazprom and National Iranian oil. Followed by the privately-owned ExxonMobil and then by, again, a host of state-owned enterprises. Nevertheless, we cannot be complacent and must find arguments and reasoning that go well beyond the simple snakebite metaphor. Given that the fight against climate change is, and rightfully so, very high on the political agenda in many Western democracies, we must make a case for the market economy as a climate saver in order to save the model itself. As much as the market economy can help save the climate, the climate can help save the market economy, which is at the very heart of the liberal idea. We do this by looking for liberal, market-based solutions where economic growth and reduced emissions can go hand in hand, or better yet, where there is already a positive correlation. We start by looking at the world's foremost economic superpowers, the US, Sweden and the EU. Sweden was recently named the global champion of economic decoupling by the OECD. Since the early 1970s, the economy has more than doubled in terms of GDP per capita, while emissions have halved. The carbon footprint for every kroner in the economy is only about a quarter of what it was less than 50 years ago. If every country was like Sweden, we would have no problem. The IEA's CEO, Fatih Birol, puts it. In our view, this is clearly exaggerated, partially because some of Sweden's emissions reduction has been exported, in the sense that what was previously produced in Sweden is now imported and the emissions are therefore part of other countries' carbon budgets. Still, this is more than hinting at a solution which market liberals should dig deeper into. To explain Sweden's success in reducing emissions while at the same time improving the economy, it largely boils down to liberal, market-based solutions, with the carbon tax as a prime example. A carbon tax is liberal because by trading in emissions allowances and climate taxes, actors are given financial incentives to elect on their own to reduce their emissions and to freely decide what measures they will take. The carbon tax can be classified as a Pigouvian tax, meant to discourage those economic activities that would harm a third party or society as a whole. Some products might have either a positive or a negative externality, affecting people other than the ones directly involved in the transaction such as the carbon dioxide emitted by an industry. Pigouvian tax theory is often understood as putting a price tag on a negative externality which does not have a price. Something becoming less and less true for climate change with the advancement of scientific knowledge about its effects. It might be hard to measure the cost down to the last few dollars or euros, but the fact that it costs society is hard to dispute. Therefore, a carbon tax might be used to encourage ways to replace fossil fuels and curb energy inefficiencies. If well-managed, a carbon tax offers industry, as well as households, a predictable price for carbon. 
Such certainty is crucial, not least of all for those sectors relying on large investments with long payback times, such as the power utility sector. Since the manufacturing of an item or the production of energy imposes an unwanted cost on society and other people, we are back to Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments, where our selfish behaviour is tempered by a moral judgment of our actions. A Pigovian tax system on greenhouse gases should therefore be seen as simply balancing out the negatives so that the ultimate result has a neutral effect on society as a whole. When Sweden introduced a carbon tax in 1991, this became the world's first tax of its kind, but the tax was well anchored in Pigovian tax theory. To date, Sweden's carbon tax remains the highest tax on CO2 in the world, and it has never been seriously questioned by any of the parties in Parliament. In fact, it was accepted from the outset by the industry and is now often cited by Swedish companies as a factor that made them better prepared for climate-related legislation and demands in other countries. Part of the reason for this acceptance has to do with the tax's gradual increase and broadening, with exceptions for industries that are particularly vulnerable to competition from their counterparts in regions with no such tax. The existence of the carbon tax has also reduced the need for formal legislation, with prohibitions and similar policy tolls, as the tax itself has meant that coal and oil have been almost completely phased out of the energy sector for industrial use as well as for households. It has also meant that Sweden has the world's highest share of renewables, mixed into the fossil diesel sold, with a part coming from Swedish forestry residues that wouldn't be competitive without the carbon tax. At the same time, contrary to what many people believe, Sweden does not have a very high level of environmental taxes. In fact, Swedish green taxes as a percentage of the total tax regime are lower than the OECD average. This is partially due to Sweden's generally high level of taxation. Several other countries, including France and Canada, have looked to Sweden for inspiration when developing their systems. This is very much in line with the belief from the seven parties in the Swedish parliament that jointly developed the national climate policy legislation that entered into force in 2018. As a small country, Sweden can only make a real difference by leading the way. The US has a federal system, with many climate-related issues solved at state level rather than by the White House or Congress. This also means that climate-progressive states, such as California, which would be the sixth largest economy if it were a country, can decide not only for themselves about how to deal with climate issues, but also influence other states and form formal agreements with them. This has been done extensively within the automotive sector, a main contributor to the American carbon footprint. Here, the California Air Resources Board, CARB, has spearheaded legislation used by more than 15 US states from requirements for clean cars and fuels to adopting innovative solutions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, California has thus pioneered a range of effective approaches that have set the standard for effective air and climate programs for the nation and the world. From a liberal market-based perspective, the way CARB has chosen to tackle emissions reductions in the transport sector is interesting. Every car brand is to have a certain percentage of zero-emission vehicles, ZEVs. The percentage increases over time, 
and gradual steps, such as LEVs, low-emission vehicles, ULEVs, ultra-low, and SULEVs, super-ultra-low, are phased out. However, every car manufacturer is free to either meet the targets on its own or buy surplus permits from other manufacturers that have overachieved. CARB organises auctions to ensure transparency, but the prices are set by buyer and seller. In this way, companies with a high percentage of electric vehicles, such as Nissan, or with only EVs, such as Tesla, have an asset that other companies want, including Chrysler Fiat, which deemed for several years that it was more beneficial to buy permits rather than build EVs. On climate, it obviously doesn't matter where the emissions reductions occur, and with this kind of auction system, emissions reductions can be achieved at a lower price, since they are allocated to the companies most interested in executing them. At the same time, this provides an important additional revenue stream for companies who are the so-called first movers in the transition to low-emission mobility. It is interesting to note that when the US, under President Trump, decided to weaken these demands on the automotive industry, several of the major car companies protested, so much so that at the time of writing, they are cooperating with the state of California to ensure that future emissions demands are kept nearly intact. Similar models have been applied by CARB for other subsectors in transportation, and the model has also served as a basis for China's demand that car manufacturers reach a certain percentage of NEVs, new energy vehicles. The EU's demands on emissions for new passenger vehicles originally included a similar auction component, but it was later scrapped in favour of every manufacturer meeting its own targets. Auction-based systems function in a similar way and have over the last decade been used extensively to establish more renewable energy, mainly offshore wind and large-scale solar. In the reverse auctions practised by Portugal, the Netherlands, Chile, Peru and other countries, the energy company or utility provider demanding the least money to deliver the amount of energy required wins. This has been a successful way to reduce costs by using strict market mechanisms and has in recent years shown how renewables are now regularly outcompeting coal, oil, natural gas and nuclear power when it comes to cost per kilowatt hour produced.